I have a funny little worm wriggling around in my brain called major depression and I've recently found out that she's got a second head growing at the arse end called generalized anxiety disorder. It all makes so much sense now. It's really good that we're talking about mental health issues with a lot less stigma, a lot more openly than we used to in the past. We're recognizing this as a very real health issue that impacts many of us and sharing our stories is just going to help all of us feel a little bit less alone. Mental health is something I'm going to be talking about a lot on this podcast. Today I'm talking to athlete extraordinaire, bodybuilder, crossfitter Joel Kirkalis. Not only is Joel phenomenally strong, but he's also one of the kindest people I've ever met. And Joel has shared some of his mental health struggles with me over the last couple of years that I've known him. And so I thought I'd have him on the podcast today to talk about his mental health journey, to talk about what he's learned, and to figure out how athletes deal with mental health, to see if we can borrow some tips from an athletic mindset. So stay tuned. This is Amrita, and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bruda. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I was going to say welcome, but you said thank you even before that. So polite. <laughs> why are you Why are you giggling? I think it's my natural, uh, it's my automatic setting when I'm a little bit shy or a bit nervous. I just giggle or smile. And it's like the face that I put on. It's my default setting. <laughs> it's a very nice default setting to have. Thank you. At least you don't have resting bitch face. I'm sure I have elements of it, particularly when I'm training or if I'm very serious, but more often than not, I've just got this blank smile on my face. (laughs) You are actually surreal, as I said before, to see you outside the gym because you are like, I'm not used to seeing such a muscular person in my, in my surroundings. Like normal human bodies don't look like yours. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) No, that's true. Um, When you're in the gym and you're working out, sometimes um, it's like an anatomy lesson. Like you can see your muscles moving under the skin. And I'm just endlessly fascinated by how people become so like strong and how like your muscles are just growing under your skin. It's... Yeah, I I guess when you go even deeper and understand the anatomy and the physiology of our bodies, it it makes it even more fascinating. And then to see it working and understand what's happening, it's just, it can be quite mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. There's so many different kinds of muscles and there's um, the understanding that one thing in one part of your body can affect something else entirely. Correct, yeah. When I was, uh, the first time I went to a physiotherapist, Uh, I had a pain in my knee and he looked at my knee and then he goes, do you have a pain in your, like it was my right knee. And he goes, do you have a pain in your left shoulder as well? And I was like, yes, how do you know? And it's just amazing that my (laughs) right knee would be connected to my left shoulder in terms of my posture. Yeah. Well, we're a unit essentially. So we function as a unit. If one part of the unit is out, it's going to affect. It's so fascinating to think of us that way. We spend so much time in our heads Mm -hmm. that an understanding of our bodies and the way we as an organism work is very surreal and it, it's good sometimes to think of ourselves as a creature on this planet, isn't it? Yeah, well, I guess we're all 
such a small speck on this planet, but we're also significant in our own way too. We all have something to offer and we all, our energies will resonate with someone else. So we're all inter, interrelated in some way, shape or form. Yeah. How are you feeling today? I feel great. I feel really good. Um, trained this morning. So I always have that real rush of energy and dopamine and yeah, feel great. Yeah. I had cornflakes and uh, Cocoa Pops this morning. So I feel the same. <laughs> I woke up late. Yeah. I rolled out of bed and I really flexed my tongue when I had all of those delicious, yummy cereal, milky bits in my <laughs> mouth. Well, you were slogging your ass off in the gym. <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining the sound of it crackling in the milk now and it is quite it. Oh, that sound is so beautiful. Um, and then it crackles in your mouth as well. Yeah. Um, and it just takes you back to when you were a kid watching Saturday cartoons mm -hmm. on the TV yes. in your pajamas. Yeah, Saturday Disney. Oh, man. I could smash like two or three bowls of cereal when I was a kid. Easy. The, the, the thing is, it's, it's almost like you're eating air in some ways. It doesn't really fill you up. And then yeah. you've gone through a couple of bowls. and you... I mean, I could still smash like two bowls of like three or four or five bowls even. of Like I could eat the whole pack. And then register that you're full. And then register that I'm full and then spend the whole day wallowing in shame. <laughs> Actually, I'm trying to improve my, my relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Like weight loss is so... Um, revered in our societies and it's all about weight loss and not about gaining strength or gaining health yeah. and people's relationships with food are really fractured like we have you know things like guilty pleasure or cheat day or sinful eating or, yes you know or like the idea that you have to exercise as a punishment for what you ate the previous day yeah so you being a um, vegan athlete, bodybuilder. How was your relationship with food? I have had periods where I have really struggled with, I, I don't know if you would say elements of eating disorder, but I have been very, very conscious of what I put in my mouth and the way it affects my body, whether it's emotionally or physically. I, I like to walk around looking like I do and it does take a lot of effort and it does take restraint and it does occupy my mind space a lot of the time um particularly when i was on stage competing um it may not affect everyone in that way but for myself it was quite consuming in the way i had a relationship with food and to the point where i was counting all the calories and the protein and the fats and the carbohydrates and making sure i was eating at particular times just to ensure that i was shuttling it just to the muscles not to the fat cells and yeah you know, so uh, very regimented and strict extremely regimented i have those traits still i don't count what i eat now so much it's more by eye but i'm still very conscious of what i eat almost all the time and yeah. it, it is possibly unhealthy in some aspects but um, i mean that's what that's your aim that's your goal right your goal is your physique that's right. Like if you're a film star and your goal is to look good or to be ripped for a, for a film part, then that's what you're working towards. Correct. But for an ordinary person. I guess that's where the balance has to come in. Mm. And I would either go from not eating anything at all and be quite thin to being extremely regimented and eating on the clock or eating at particular times to maintain more size. I was never someone that was 
considered big or overweight i've naturally got like a thin frame so i have to work hard to put on size um otherwise if i don't eat much if i forget to eat which i do at times if i'm stressed or if i'm feeling down or if it's a conscious thing i do lose weight quite easily mm. so it's hard for me to emphasize with someone coming from the other way but there is still a distortion of the way i view food for for someone that isn't so competitive like i used to be mm. trying to be a little bit more of a normal person quote unquote well first of all going back how do you forget to eat like i always find this so funny when people say like or when people's response to stress is to forget to eat yeah. it's so weird to me it's like i literally count down the minutes since i last ate something yeah. See, I, and I guess it's possibly the relationship that you have. Some people may look at food as something to handle that stress, to make yeah. them feel better. I would look at it almost the other way. Like if I'm eating, it's a punishment. If I'm, if I'm not eating, it's a punishment and I'm not worth, I'm not feeling good about myself. Why, why should I be rewarding myself? So just don't eat. Yeah. And it's looking at it from the other end of the spectrum, I guess. That, I'd never thought of that. Yeah, you're right. For me... Emotional eating is about an escape from the stressful situation. And then all the associated behaviors like sitting in front of the TV and watching something comforting. Yeah. But I can totally see how people might feel that I'm such a bad person that I don't deserve food as a reward. And possibly, like for me, a lot of my poor relationship with food came after my uh, relationship with substances. And I... I guess in my mind, I was always aware that I used to reward myself by taking things like, and feeling good in that way. So almost doing the opposite now and not rewarding myself if I feel down is the way to counteract those old habits. Mm. But I've almost went to the point where I was going the other end of the spectrum. So I was quite skinny, like the skinniest or the lightest I got to was about 58 kilos. So I'm sitting at about... 81 82 now so it's, and that's all muscle 20. right a lot of it is yeah i i heard on another podcast that you're at six percent body fat yeah i i walk around about six or seven percent body fat what the hell <laughs> get out of my house <laughs> this is a house of fat people <laughs> what it's just something that i was born like born with i i work very very hard but it, i do some would say obsessively yeah i would say so too I would say so. Now, I'm not trying to slag you. Look, you no, really it are. Is. I, I, even from my young days when I was playing soccer, I always had a single-minded ambition to be the best at what I was doing. And it, to the point where it became obsessive. I mean, I wish that I had your dedication. I spent so many years making excuses for not doing the things that I want to do. And I, I used to beat myself up. I still do beat myself up. I feel like I'm a worthless human being because I have so many opportunities. I am so privileged in, you know, like my financial background, my social background in all of these ways. And yet I don't do the things that I do. And then I hear stories of people um, like the writer Stephen King, for example, yeah. used to work in a laundromat. And when the laundromat was quiet or in his break times he would sit and write out the back and then he became a famous writer so i'm like look at all these people working so hard or you i heard that you used to throw yourself on the concrete to toughen up yeah. to become a better yeah. soccer goalkeeper yeah. i'm imagining this little kid right 
when I was like nine or ten years old, I'm like vegetating in front of Cartoon Network, and and you are out there throwing yourself on concrete. Like, what kind of kid does that? I heard you your language in saying that you looked at yourself as a worthless human being, and, and you equated it to like the physical uh, lack of motivation. But I could look at it and say that I'm a I'm worthless human being because I don't have the similar motivations to what you have. It's all relative to what our our highest values are in our life and for me the way i look physically is probably my highest value so it just it makes me sad to think that you are comparing it's almost like you're comparing it to myself oh i I compare myself to you so (laughs) much and then i go the fuck are you doing like you're comparing yourself to a bodybuilding champion you (laughs) that literally uh like a career couch potato <laughs> but then i realized it's like don't compare yourself to joel like yeah joel goes to the gym seven days a week he's in the gym fucking five o'clock in the morning that's that's, that's joel's highest value joel joel <laughs> spent so many years working in a job that he didn't enjoy never thinking he could go to university and graduate and uh, i beat myself up over so many other things to the point where i was self-destructive my highest value was always just training. And that's why I guess people look at me perhaps and think that I'm doing well in that sense. But there's other aspects of my life where I struggle with enormously. Yeah. So. so, okay, just to be clear that I'm not trying to like get you to tell me all the ways in which you suck so I feel better about myself. <laughs> even though that's what it's sounding like. <laughs> <No>. But I, <laughs> I completely understand what you mean about spending years of your life doing things you didn't enjoy. Um, but before that, let, I want to rewind back to when you were that kid throwing yourself on concrete to toughen up to become yeah. a soccer goalie. Uh, how old were you at that time? I started playing when I was 10. Uh, I had no idea about what the sport was before that, but my uncle introduced me to the uh, Italian 90 World Cup. And I remember watching the players and the, um, I was fascinated by like the Dutch team from back then uh, with Rude Huller and Frank Rijkaard and all these great players. And I just got fascinated by the sport and I started playing for my local team, Brunswick. They were called Brunswick Juventus back then. So they had an Italian background. I think they're called Brunswick Zebras now because of the black and white stripes. Right. Um, A lot of the teams back then, they still kind of do now have an ethnic uh, tag or ethnic background to the particular club from when they started most most often back in the early 50s when all the immigrants came over after the war. So I started playing with them. First year, I was not terribly good. I didn't know how to read the game as an on-field player. Um, As it so happened, the goalkeeper left at the end of my first season and they wanted to trial a new goalkeeper. Right. They put me in and I was... It was my calling. It It felt so natural to me and it triggered something inside where i was like i want to be good at this i want to be like the best yeah so i came up with my own little programs and i read books i went to the library and read books from uh some of the great goalkeepers who had books like peter shilton who was the england goalkeeper and i remember reading stories about him hanging from uh bars in his garage and having his parents pulling on his legs to make him taller because he was short and I was short as well like for a goalkeeper genuinely six foot plus and I'm five 
nine at a stretch. And so I looked at other ways to make myself better. So I thought I'll be as explosive and dynamic as I could be and fast and agile. So I thought, well, if I can dive on concrete, then the grass is going to be easy. So I would just kick the ball against the wall, brick wall uh, in my backyard and dive to catch the ball. And uh, it hurt initially, but it got easier and I just kept doing it and doing it. And I found that my performance on the field was getting better and I was making state teams and I was in representative teams. And yeah, it was my obsession, absolute obsession. As obsessed as I was or as I am now with CrossFit and bodybuilding, I believe I was more so back then because it was my one dream that I could see myself doing. But your parents, did they like beg you to stop? No, they did it. They, they, they were extremely supportive of me. They, I don't know how much they knew of what I was doing, like if they were aware of it. They, they knew that I was getting injured a lot like on the field, but I don't know if they were completely aware of the extent that I was like, throw myself around to yeah. make myself better but um but it's really so good that they were so proud of you and understood what drives you yeah yeah but my, my parents have like have always been very supportive of myself and the rest of my siblings uh, yeah like, so you had a happy childhood i had a happy childhood yeah it was i saved uh, up until my mid-teens it was relatively uneventful like there was uh ups and downs but most families would go through that but there was nothing that really stood out that made me think i've had something different to what i believe other families have but it was a it was a great childhood it was supportive my mum would drive me all around victoria to play for representative teams or to play for my club and she would bend over backwards for me and for the rest of us she still does to this day so it's extremely blessed and extremely grateful mums are so amazing my mum as well stretched herself really 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 thin there was a point at which she was the ceo of uh, of a company she had more than 100 employees and it was she was so so busy but she still would and now this makes me feel ashamed when I say this, but she would still come home and cook. She would come to all like school events. She even helped with school homework. There was nothing that we lacked for. And I just am amazed at how women stretch themselves so thin and put their children's needs yeah. ahead of their own. So selfless. Yeah. So you have had, you have dealt with mental health ups and downs throughout your life haven't you i would say since about 15 is when it really came out i think before then i had periods where i'd feel really down or really dark and i'd be just in tears for no reason i remember i don't know why i remember it but i remember going home from a friend's birthday party i would have been in primary school uh i like to think she was like my first girlfriend at the time uh like it's it was so informal but um i remember something triggered me and i was just in hysterically in tears and i couldn't control myself so i made the excuse that i had sore ears like my i said that my left ear is sore for some reason um which it wasn't ironically i'm almost deaf in this ear now for some (laughs) reason 
um, and got my mum to pick me up. And I couldn't explain it, but it was just something that overcame me and it was crippling and it was yeah, distressing for myself. But I didn't want anyone else to see it. So I tried to just keep it in. But that day when I first happened was very much out of my control. But after that, I was able to hold it in a little bit more, even though I could, like, I could feel something coming on. Um, when I got to about 15 and I started discovering that I had feelings for like for other girls out there as a young boy, like it's natural in a sense to have feelings for someone. It triggered something in my mind where I'd have this euphoric feeling about feeling something for someone and then the almost catastrophic downside to that where it was crippling me and it took me away from all my focus on soccer and school and uh triggered something in me that wanted to start taking something to ease this pain that I was feeling. I, I couldn't explain it. I don't know where it came from or why, or it's just, it became all consuming. And yeah, yeah. from about 15 is when it started to really yeah, rear its head. And it just felt like hopelessness and helplessness and doom yeah. and darkness and... I was never like brought up in any way that really could have caused that. Like I, I don't remember seeing anything. I don't remember experiencing that could have triggered that. But yeah, like I said, that from when I was maybe seven or eight, there was elements of it. And then when I was yeah 15 or so, it became just all consuming. Yeah. It took over my life for the next, severely for the next five or six years. And then, it's been on and off since to, to this day, like even, yeah. But I can imagine how devastating it is for a kid, you know, when you're just 15 years old. For me, when my depression really took hold was uh, when I was 18 or 19 years old and my parents had to rehome my dog and that was the catalyst for a terrible feeling of complete lack of, um, purpose in life mm -hmm. feeling like I'm just not off this world I felt oh. like I was of um, a creature of some other dimension and completely out of place and longing to go somewhere but I didn't know where you couldn't relate to your friends and your peers I couldn't relate I couldn't feel um, I was sort of walking through life in a haze like a lucid dream, like where am I and what's... I mean, on the surface, things looked still okay. But in my h heart, I felt... And I thought, oh, I'm just having an existential crisis, as all kids do when they're um, finishing up their teens. And this is a very trendy thing to happen. But I now realize that that was like the starting of the depression. Yeah. But even like what are you saying as a kid, I was a very intense kid as well. I had very deep emotions and I was always in my head I was always in fantasy land did you write did you ever write down your feelings I didn't write my feelings but I used to write stories and stuff like that mm. and I used to talk to myself like have imaginary dialogues with mm. characters or other people or just myself in my mind and I was like a kid that I just daydreamed all the time yeah and one of the one of the things that I realized much later in my life 
that didn't help my depression was that I lived in a fantasy world too much. Mm-hmm. You you relate? I relate, and I realize that it's you you're looking at things in the ideal and not in the like the realistic right. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at people like how they should be, how relationships should be, or how I should be, and I'm not that. And then feeling really bad about myself because yeah. I'm not that. Um, and to the point where your fantasy world becomes a a, a break and a kind of uh, a refuge yeah. from these the reality that you don't quite understand. Yeah, it becomes a comfort zone to stay in that little fantasy world and not have to go out there and fail yes. to meet your unrealistic expectations. Yeah, absolutely. And then you don't even try because you're so caught up in your fantasy, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't try because you're afraid to fail. Yeah. Yeah. And fear of failure for me at least has been something that's very very hard to deal with and stop me from trying so many things because I just tell myself it's unachievable and, and uh, I can't do it and I mean everybody has something that they're good at and this is as well something that I it took me a long time to accept that it's okay if I'm not Yeah. A Joel Kirkulis. Sorry, is that how I say your name? Kirkulis <laughs> yeah. or Kirkulis? I say Kirkulis, but okay. I don't know like if there is a real right or wrong way right. to say it. Right, I'm sorry. It. No, so, it's fine. You know, it's okay if I'm not a Joel Kirkulis. It's okay if I'm not um, the thinnest. Or the, I, I, for a long time, I was obsessed with being thin. And like body positivity as, as well has been a big thing I'm still working on. Yeah. But it definitely contributed a lot to my depression and anxiety. Were you looking at other people and comparing yourself in that aspect in terms of how you felt about weight and how you felt about food? Yeah, absolutely. Like when I was growing up, I was always taller and fatter than all of the kids. When I was in uh, an Indian school in Oman, I literally was the tallest and girl and I was taller than even all of the female teachers, I think. And I was probably the fattest person in the whole school. And it's not, obviously it's not easy when you're growing up to be different than other kids. But when you have a predisposition to depression and anxiety, that's even more of a toxic combination when you're different to other kids. Yeah, And prone to telling yourself or reaffirming those things to yourself, especially if you don't feel like you can share it and, if your dialogue is all internal and yeah. it, it kind of builds up. But like you, I had a mum that I shared a lot of things with. I'm so grateful for my mum. Was she supportive of you? Could, could she emphasize or emphasize, emphasize with you? Like Yeah, she she was very empathetic. She always told me about all of my good qualities. Um, but at the end of the day, she and I are both subject or we're both prone to believing the um social dialogues around women's roles in society, body image. So she was as much affected by those things as I was. So, okay, moving back to your childhood again. Yes. Uh, You mentioned that a lot of immigrants came over after the war. Was your grandparents as well? Yes. So my, both my mum and dad's parents came over after the war. My, they were both, both sides were involved in the war, so I guess my dad's side being Greek, they were occupied from uh, 1940 um, or early 1941 through to the end of the war. And my 
mum's side being Polish were very heavily affected by the, by the war. Oh, so, were they Jewish? No, they weren't Jewish. They're Catholic, but being Poles, they were viewed unfavorably by both the Germans and by the Russians. So they were stuck in the middle. Um, they were one of the races that were de- like termed uh, subhuman by the Germans. Wow! In like the racist beliefs that they had back then. My grandfather, um, who's still alive to this day, he's 96, he's told his story um, a few times about him being in a labor camp while his family were still in their village. That village was uh, massacred in 1944 by members of the Ukrainian SS. The whole village. There was over a thousand people massacred, uh, like, uh, like gruesomely put in um, barns and the barns locked and set on fire and people when they were like burned to death there were um, women who had their babies cut out of their stomachs and bayoneted and oh it's like sadistic but it was the conditions that they would have experienced for the soldiers and the indoctrination that they had and hatred that they had it's not excusable in a, in any way, shape, or form, but it was. I can see it. it was different times. It was brutal times back then. So he lost all his relatives except for his sister. So they came to the country uh, about 1950 and settled in. Went to Bonagilla, um, uh, where a lot of other immigrants did. My grandmother, uh, she came as well, and they met in Australia. Right. And, um same with my um, grandparents on my dad's side they met in australia and started a family so what i'm like second or third generation because my parents were born here and yeah yeah, we were raised here but you're very close to your granddad uh your polish granddad yeah look i i guess through my whole years of struggling i kind of distanced myself from everyone not intentionally just i was in my own little world at the time but now i'm very very close to him do you ever talk to him about like mental health and how he rebuilt his mind and his life and his hope? I've never spoken to him in in, a, in in like in that context. I've listened to stories about how he started again and built his life and uh, w- worked in Brunswick in the um, the Hilton factory on Albion Street and um, listened to all those like how he came from nothing to create what he has now but i've never spoken to him on the aspect of mental health Mm. um i've never really known how to start that that topic of conversation in a sense it's yeah in some in some ways i don't like talking about mental health in some ways and uh with family members or with people yeah uh, um it's strange. I'll, I'll speak to some people who I feel very comfortable with. Other people, I just... There's like an invisible barrier and mm. I don't want to say things in so, some ways. And yeah, I guess my family in some ways are like that. It's not so much them, it's more what I feel. Yeah. Um, Do you feel afraid to make them worry about you? Is that maybe part of it? Yeah, I worry that people are going to be disappointed in me or I'm worried that people are going to... Pity you? 
Yeah, so in some ways, like, yeah, because yeah, I, I guess I pitied myself for so long and felt sorry for myself. And I thought, well, that that's kind of the norm. I didn't like. Yeah, absolutely. In my family, we're so open about talking about mental health issues, but I still feel that. I was recently diagnosed by a psychiatrist with major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. So this last one and a half years has been the worst of my life. Um, I mean, I always knew I had depression, but I never knew it could be this bad. And I used to listen to, so there's this Indian actress called Deepika Padukone, who is uh, very vocal about her fight with depression. And she was, you know, she was been talking about how she would just cry day in and day out. And I thought, I don't understand that. I mean, I have depression, but I, I, I sort of live with it. And then it hit me so bad that I was like that. I would just cry for no reason. And I was like, oh, now I get why. And and she would cry about it just when recounting how it felt. And like I, I know that now. Like when I think back at those times, the complete soullessness of uh, the, the complete lack of hope, that does crazy things to a human's brain. We are designed to exist with some purpose and within some kind of social structure so, you know we know that these meanings are arbitrarily given like these are all just inventions of our co- you know, collective imaginations but we willingly buy into that yeah. like, we need some purpose without that it's like that scene in gravity where george clooney just floats away into the nothingness of space without any kind of meaning or hope humans just can't live yeah and start questioning why you're here and yeah. what value you bring and yeah and and feeling like at least for me i um could never really contemplate suicide i, I mean i wished all the time that i wasn't alive but i could never I, I never had any suicidal ideation um because i feared too much what it would do to my family but I, I understand to some extent how people might feel so hopeless yeah. that they would not even want to live anymore. Yeah, and it it just becomes so consuming that you often, and for myself, it's like I didn't even think about anyone else around. And it, it's possibly selfish, but it's at the time you don't, well, I didn't know any better. Like I didn't know who to turn to i just felt like i was on my own and, yeah and yeah for me it was like i didn't think of what would happen to other people and that it was okay that they'd be better off if i was gone it's not selfish it's a protective mechanism of the brain yeah yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to hurt you don't want to suffer like and i guess it just it warps your whole sense of reality in so many ways and takes over your whole sense of programming in your language in your beliefs in your internal dialogue i look back and think now there are blessings in what i went through yeah what are the blessings it wouldn't i i wouldn't be where I am now if I didn't go through all that. Mm. I wouldn't appreciate 
what I have now. I wouldn't appreciate what or who I had back then if mm. I didn't go through all of that. Um, my sense of drive and my sense of ability to push myself is greater now, I believe, than if I hadn't gone through all of what I went through. And my sense of appreciation of self is greater now, I believe, than... I've been through dark times, like losing my brother and blaming myself incredibly much for that. I never turned back to abusing myself physically. I still do in a sense emotionally and mentally, but physically like I would have if I didn't know any better. As dark a time as it was, there were there were good things that came out of it. Wow, that's really strong that after such a traumatic event as losing your brother to suicide. Yeah, I had a few, like I had my grandparents on my dad's side pass away within a few years of each other. I had my brother pass away. I had my mum go through uh, treatment for leukemia. So it was uh, wow. a lot of suffering again. Mm. Like it kind of came back. Uh, it's almost that I could sense that when everything was doing okay in my life, something bad would happen to bring it all back into balance. Mm. Um, so yeah, that period was quite challenging for me, but I didn't resort back to the temptations that I had in the past. And they were there, like I, they're always there. Like, and people talk about substances now and my mind often goes off and thinks, what, what would it be like if I went back to it? Like, how would it, how would I be able to function? And how it would feel, um, but I'm a lot stronger in my sense of controlling myself, um, in at least a physical sense, to resist those temptations. And Does that give you pride that you are able to resist that? In that sense, yes. Yeah. yeah. Because I used to just be so greedy in a sense and gluttonous in, in my consumption of things that weren't helping me whatsoever and just destroying my, myself physically and mentally. So, yeah, I've, I'm proud of myself for that. Yeah. Um, Did you ever think that those drugs were serving a purpose of... Then at the time, it was just an escape. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, it was an escape. Um, and it just became part of who I thought I was. Just, yeah, it took over my life in the same way that CrossFit consumes a lot of my life and bodybuilding did and soccer certainly did. Yeah, um substances yeah definitely were my identity um well when you're not feeling anything and something allows you to escape that numbness and pain of nothingness in your brain yeah and and i I, people have said like that like use that analogy like feeling nothingness i don't know if i ever felt nothingness i felt like just a visceral consuming sadness and hopelessness and worthlessness so it was i wanted something that completely obliterated that feeling um not something to give me a feeling but something to take away that horrible feeling that i had and yeah yeah make it feel better yeah in the only way i knew like i i didn't think it was cool in a sense to be playing soccer and when i was 17 18 anymore it was like that passion had completely dissipated and it was what could have been a healthy escape from what 
potentially this may have been a normal transition into adulthood it became the opposite and just became yeah yeah but do you have a lot of shame still about taking drugs no not anymore there, there's still some elements of shame in terms of what i did but more so it's now a sense of pride in a sense that i was able to beat it and not and, and beat it myself and i can't say i didn't put anyone else through it because there were people affected but i yeah i didn't seek outside help just to try to do it myself and I, i'm probably like that now in ways that i don't ask for help for much i just try to do it all on my own and yeah maybe one of my faults that i yeah so you have this um you have this interest in biohacking. Like yeah. when you were like a kid and throwing yourself against the concrete, that was a kind of yeah, hacking that you were trying to do. Yeah. yeah, and try to be very controlling of my mind and my thoughts and not let outside distractions take me away from my single-minded like single -minded drive to be a professional soccer player. Yeah, and so is that so, something that what helped you come out of your first... Um, bout of drug use yeah it turned into like the extreme in the other other sense that I wanted to be very very healthy and it turned out that I did become that in a physical sense like I started riding push bikes and started doing century rides so like uh, 160 kilometer rides and things wow I think they classify century ride as like a hundred mile like an American term but it's like 160 kilometers here so ride for like six or seven hours at a time just wanting to be fit and healthy again and it kind of coincided with periods of unhealthy obsession with food i got i started eating a vegan diet then as a way to fix myself up not fully understanding how to do it back then because this was 16 17 years ago now there was no real internet sites or social media to gain information books or anything so i just started eating a lot of vegetables and raw foods and juices and ways to just detox myself and feel better and i stayed very very skinny um but i was physically getting very very fit again so yeah it was one extreme to the other but a single-minded drive mm. and just to the feeling of worthlessness was still there and I kept thinking if I can do this and if I can do that and achieve this, then I'll not feel worthless anymore. As it happened, it's I'm realizing that's not the way to like take away those feelings because the feelings are still there in so many ways. But yeah. That feeling of worthlessness is what got me partly into hurting myself, but then it got me into healing myself as well. Yeah. So, so that's a very um athletic mindset, isn't it? Like finding a goal and then working towards it. Yeah, it can be athletic. It can be maybe even academic and you set yourself a career goal or a studying goal or something and you're just aiming for that and it's all you see, like the tunnel vision kind mm. of mindset where you don't really notice the outside world and distractions and things like that. And it can be hard, but I like I trained my mind to be able to just be fixated on that one goal and not get distracted i can't relate to that very much because i'm a very distracted person like i have many things going on in my brain all the time yeah and i suspect if not all but many creative people are like that but i'm very like interested in the way athletes train and um, overcome setbacks yeah. in mood in in physical sort of life like for example 
you like hear so many stories of athletes that have done um that have gone through periods of like drug abuse or whatever and then yeah. bounced out of it and are coming back yeah. so what is it that athletes do to deal with depression or things like that that other people can sort of understand and copy perhaps uh i guess asking myself the why of what i'm doing or the why of like why my behavior is where it is and what i want and understand or discover what my values are and i guess as an athlete you're most likely your values are your performance for your sport and for your health to be able to achieve that in your sport um that that was what how i was able to beat my like addictions but the goal is like sometimes can seem so massive right so there's no one rock bottom for most people there's like many moments there's many life. rock bottoms yeah right. like i i i went through many times where i thought i was rock bottom even recently i thought i had periods of where i was rock bottom too and it's so when you're at that lowest rock bottom point and then you're looking up at this goal that is so lofty most of the people would get scared so how do you start slowly digging yourself out of your hole and getting there i have to ask myself how i'm going to get there what's it going to take okay and what are the steps i need to take and path i need to follow to get there and i i can only speak for myself so i can't really understand how someone else can compute those terms but even when i was young and i wanted to play professionally and i knew like I, it was so far away i set myself little goals okay and when i first started trying to get healthy it was like i'll ride x amount and then i'll add another half an hour to my ride or another hour to my ride and just build on it and take each little uh, achievement as a win and look at that and appreciate it but then look at building on that and think about how it is just a little step on my journey and not get lost in the whole big picture of it try to understand the little daily processes that are involved in it and yeah that's interesting cuz cuz you're also a trainer at my crossfit gym and yeah. you uh, i go to your monday night yeah. class so you tell me and other people chip away at it yeah you look at i and i look at particularly now with study that i'm back to embarking on a degree that i'm looking at it like a crossfit workout like a like a long workout and it's probably why i gravitate towards long grinding slogs of workouts where it's like i know that i'm going to finish it but i know it's so far away i just have to take it one rep at a time one set at a time and be in the moment not be two or three steps ahead mm. appreciate that i'll get there but understand that i have to do the little things first to get to my goal and that's how i looked at it back then when i was getting healthy and that's how i look at it now with school and that's how i look at it with training mm. and it's the advice that i give particularly in training context that's where i feel comfortable in giving advice like i said yeah chip away one thing at a time don't if you're trying to learn a technique like a complicated technique worry about one little progression at a time don't beat yourself up because you can't do the movement yet 
Break it into small pieces and work on one at a time and building on it. Well, you're a man that's very open about his feelings. I, I am in some ways, yes. And in other ways, I'm like, everyone is at arm's length. Um, but I'm uh, working on being more open with my feelings. Yeah, I mean, for somebody that's uh, a self-described lone wolf, you are so disarmingly open about depression or your past with like substance abuse and things like that. So, well, I, I see it as a way, not so much to say to people, don't do what I did, more so to say what you're doing at the time is not necessarily going to define who you are and who you become. It's it's part of your journey and there'll be lessons from what you go through, whether it's something that at the time seems awful, or at the time something seems amazing. It's going to be something that you'll remember and you can learn from as you go go into later years of your life. Like you can't, I can't tell someone, hey, don't do that because I did it and I know it was bad. It's like someone has to go through and experience it for themselves. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of, there's a tone of compassion in what you're saying compassion for yourself that we're human and we'll go through periods when we'll feel shit and do yeah. things that don't make us happy and then there'll be better periods yeah it's kind of like a roller coaster in a sense and I, like for myself i can look back and see it's almost like cyclical the highs and the lows and almost i can almost predict when there's going to be highs and lows in a sense it's not that like simple but the good and the bad, the light and the dark, its it all balances out in the end. And I'm realizing it now that, like I said, I'm taking blessings from the awful things I did to myself and seeing that there was a lesson in it and a blessing in it and use it now to be more empathetic to others and to myself. Like So now when you've got this attitude of empathy and compassion for yourself, do you fear relapsing into um, substance use again? It It's on the back of my mind a lot, but I don't feel like I will. Like I can't say never will, but at this point now, and I've, like I was saying, I felt like I was going through my lowest point uh, maybe four, five, six months ago. Um, and I thought if I was going to do something, it would be then, whether it was, yeah, relapse into taking things or just completely fall away from my training and just become completely overwhelmed and engulfed by my sadness. I found a way to see the upside of it and mm. see that there was hope. And it was always a little glimmer of hope. It was like a little spark. It was just... I don't know, like a like a match in like a giant dark room that I could see in the corner. It was there, so it stopped me. And I, as long as I feel that, then I don't think I'll relapse. Um, and do you have any mechanisms for when you find that little glimmer of hope to like recognize it, hold on to it, or or sort of use that to draw your way back into the world? Like it's something that I have to take on like a very minute to minute and yeah. hour by hour thing um look for something that's going to 
give me not immediate release because that's when I can go to start like taking something because that will take away that sadness. But like think about what I like, think about what has made me happy in the past and think about yeah. what my greater goal is. And for me, it's sometimes thinking about others or thinking about animals. And I've always, maybe that's why I've got a close association with animals. Um, I, I always believe that there's someone suffering worse than me. Yeah. And that if they can go through it or if, like what my grandparents went through or what I've seen other people suffering go through, then I can do it. And I, and I have to tell myself that I'm strong enough and that this will pass and that I can I can go on to better things. But in the moment, it's very, very difficult. It's like a cloud over you or a haze. And mm. it's very, very hard to see through it. But I try to tell myself or try to reaffirm with myself what, what I like and what my hopes are, what I want to achieve if I wasn't in this state where I'd rather be, like yeah, what, yeah. I, what I would rather be doing. And more often than not, it will change my mindset in a way that will allow me to see more of my potential and more of mm. what I want to do and my values. Mm. Yeah, there's this website called Headspace, uh, not website, app. I've heard it's of like it, a meditation yeah. app. So they say that the sky is blue just because there are clouds covering it up right now. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's like that all the time. Yeah. You just have to remember that there will be blue sky again. Yeah, the storm will pass. The storm will pass. And beyond these clouds, there is a blue sky. Yeah. And part of my way for achieving blue sky thinking is like what you said, remembering what I like. Sometimes I like to think back to me as a five-year-old. Yeah. What does little Amrita like? What did she like? What does she value? And yes, it is things like I love animals. So... Sometimes when I'm in a place of absolute hopelessness, I've now learned the tools to go back almost inside yeah. to the essence of me yeah. and remind myself that that's still there. My dreams are still there. My hopes are still there. And that gives me the confidence that this will pass. It's like an anchor inside of me. Yeah. But I've, I've, I'm, I'm slowly learning that the anchor is not external. The yeah. locus of control is an external the exterior of us changes in some way, shape or form. But deep down, there is still the the, the passionate, excited child. It, yeah. it doesn't go away. I guess we almost suppress it by giving into what society might want us to be or what we think society mm. wants us to be and lose it in a way. Mm. Um, what you said, that it resonates a lot with me. And I, I look back and think what would like... What what did little Joel want to do, and what was his dreams? And yeah, yeah, the something with me was always like I want to help people, and I didn't know how. And it's kind of why I do look externally at times for a motivation, but that motivation is still an intrinsic one mm. um, because I do like to help people, and yeah, that's the essence of who I am deep yeah. down. Yeah, we never really uh, uh, living by your values is often reverting to what you wanted as a kid because that's when your foundation is that's when you start forming your values as a person yeah. and understanding who you are and what you want to be is often going back almost and touching those memories of you that are painful and in that memory is trying to find that like trying to identify what little you felt at those at those times 
And it's like, yeah, it's like going back and sorting through the rubble to try and find little you again. Yeah, you're, you're hiding there behind the rubble, like everything that's fallen in the way of it in the like preceding years or the, like the following years. You sort back through it and they're waiting there for you. Like, oh, they haven't yeah. changed. I know, it's so cute when you think about it that way, <laughs> like little me. Um, but before I move on, I want to go back and say one more thing about what you were talking uh, before about setting goals, little goals yeah. in your workout. In a way, I also realized that mental health is like a muscle that you have to exercise yeah. and set little goals for yourself. When you have a huge uh, setback, when you've hit rock bottom, when you've gone through a tremendously low period, you're not going to bounce back immediately to how you were. No. There are scars, there are, uh, everything has slowed down. And so it's about chipping away at it, like bit by bit, exercising little things and uh, accepting that it's like you're an injured athlete and accepting that you have limitations at this point. Yeah. So if you need to sleep, you just need to sleep, you know? I look at it as though what your subconscious mind believes and the body will be able to respond to it. So if you, if you tell yourself that you can do something instead of telling yourself that you can't, um, and if you're positive about it, then... You're going to start creating those pathways that will affirm that to your body that it can do it. So it's like, like you said, the mind is a muscle. If you train it to be positive, then your body's going to respond mm. and your conscious thoughts will respond and your subconscious will respond. It's just a matter of training it in the right way. That yeah, yeah, and, and training it with that, tiny goals. The yeah. plasticity in those pathways. Plasticity, that's right. Um, the ability to bounce back from anything yeah. traumatic is plasticity, isn't it? But yeah. um, you can't do it too soon or you you just won't make any progress. You'll just be more injured than ever. Yeah. And that is placing the burden of, of, that translates to placing the burden of being functional or mm. being what other people expect you to be too soon. Yes. Yeah. And not losing the beliefs to that extrinsic mm. belief that someone is putting on you you got to like mm. understand it in yourself yeah and not get lost in what others expectations are of you yeah like i see you you injured yourself recently you had sh shoulder surgery i had i so i fractured my elbow then i tore my pec yeah i've seen you like um, I mean, obviously, even despite being severely injured, you're still training way more than I thought humanly possible. But <laughs> I've seen you like up that slowly. And in a way, this is a very far-fetched analogy, but it makes me feel a little bit better about going to the gym once a week. I feel like, okay, if Joel can really like reduce what he's doing on some of his muscles, then I'll be okay if at the moment, I'm only able to make it once a week because I make plans for more than once a week. But for some reason, they never happen. But I tell myself, yeah. at least I'm going once a week. And then I think, oh, my God, am I making excuses for myself? Like, am I actually a fucking lazy loser that's only going once a week? And like, I could be, I should be going. And then I'm like, hold on a second. This is the kind of thinking that made me like self-hatred. Yeah, I try and think that. Five years ago, I would have just kept paying this fucking gym membership for <laughs> years and never and, gone. And not gone, yeah. But now at least I'm going once a week and I'm working on it. But I'm also working on other things in my life. Like I got a podcast. Exactly. I think if you write down 
perhaps what your values are mm. and it might make it a bit more tangible and maybe perhaps make you feel a little bit less critical of yourself if at that point in time training is not your number one value or number one priority because I can't imagine this is quite an easy thing to do to set up a podcast and I'm not doing that I'm not setting up a podcast I just arrived here and you gave me lovely muesli bars and lovely coffee and <laughs> that's why for me like I can make training my number one value at the moment and not beat myself up over not having a podcast or not doing something else I'm appreciating that for me now to do what I want to do it's and it's my value I have to not do something else yeah and not yeah. compare myself to someone that's doing something else it's absolutely I I, I feel that now like uh, you or uh, so many other strong people at the gym their number one priority is their athletic performance yeah. uh, and for me it's like my creative like that's my goal at the moment yeah. um, or even working on my mental health and improving my coping abilities and improving my um, rewiring my brain yeah. that takes a lot of energy and that is also one of my priorities at the moment yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes me feel then less critical of myself when I'm, you know, trying to get a holistic view of my life. Yeah. And, and I, I, for me, I believe that social media makes it more challenging because you yeah. often see the ideals and it's almost like being back in that fantasy world where you just see someone and you might become infatuated because you just see the them in their best self yeah not everyone is going to put out like the dark times on social media it's more the sunny side and it's so easy to get lost in that fantasy of believing that you're not worthy for them or your life isn't as important as theirs or you know it was interesting as theirs um because you see them at their best self and not see them when they're down it's for me it's made it very very challenging mm. um and for me there's been numerous times where i've had my finger on the deactivate button of instagram or facebook and then i think hey what have i got to offer um and even if it's just putting a photo of me out with the pigs or something it's like i can do this not anyone else not many other people are doing that it's uh, someone out there might find value in that. So I stay on and I post something and I realize people watch my stories and people comment. And Yeah, that is so beautiful that you've realized that you don't have to, you you are, you matter and your experience is valuable. Yeah. Well, and and it, this is literally only a very recent thing because I, and I haven't said it to many people but i self-harmed again maybe i'm getting emotional thinking about it now uh six months ago uh late last year when i was going through a really tumultuous time with wanting to move i wasn't sure if i was going to move into state to study and i had things pulling me back to stay here um i was realizing what i was losing there and i was realizing what I would lose here and I was I didn't feel like I was understood by anyone and it was I was not really training much I was not really eating much I lost weight and I was not wanting to really put anything out on social media I was only putting things out to like show the bright side of things and 
cover up for the fact that how I was really feeling. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very much a difficult time. But I'm real. It's only since then that I'm realizing that I have some value to to offer people, and I have something that people may want to see. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel for my feelings then. And it's got me to a better mind space now. But it was, yeah, a very tough time for me then. And it was, like you say, like the, the clouds were completely covering the blueness of the sky. And yeah, I get that. It's, yeah, it, it's it's tough. Like times are tough. But like you said, the, the clouds will pass, the storm will go, the blue sky will come back. And it's. Yeah. You feel things very deeply, don't you? You're very. Yeah, I, I think I do. I, I, yeah. I, I guess that's why. I, look for outlets to like make myself feel better with training and things like that and study and I don't know it's probably it's a balancing act so how do you draw boundaries like who is worth your time I don't know if I completely figured it out yet like I feel like everyone like I feel like I am no better or no worse than anyone everyone is worth my time and I try to give everyone as much time as possible I'll try to respond to every message that I get or every call or uh, yeah i might need to work on finding boundaries yeah i guess particularly as i would like to make a career out of what i know and i and i am in the process of working on strategies to be able to at least value what i know and not just give it out for free but yeah absolutely i i I like it like i said i enjoy helping people and i for so long my payment has been the feeling i get just to share something with someone you are one of the most kind people i've ever met you are one of the kindest people i've ever met and when i first saw you at the same time i can probably be one of the worst people you've ever met i guess it's uh, i'm a kaleidoscope of personality well, everyone is yeah but one of your strengths is that you're incredibly kind to others like you just radiate so much warmth for other people yeah. um and i think there's not a single person that knows you that wouldn't agree with this. I appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, do you do, like do you have any support groups or do you go and see a psychologist or anything? So you're dealing with all this alone. Always. Yeah, I I see someone now to help me with I guess mindset in terms of helping to value myself and it's helped a lot. But for the last 37 years I've never really I never saw it other than when I got rushed to a psychologist in high school because I was cutting myself repeatedly. I like I, I like that idea and I like to be able to talk about it now and I feel like it probably could help me. Yeah. I I like to put on this tough exterior and say that I'm like a lone wolf or whatever it is. Uh, but I guess deep down I just want to be understood and I don't know if... I've ever really allowed myself to be put in that situation where I could find someone that understands me. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I should have like, you know, a Sunday uh, bitch club for misunderstood, (laughs) miserable fucks to get together. Because surely we can't all be misunderstood. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just sit together, huddled over like coffee and muesli bars and just like bitch to our heart's content about (laughs) everything that sucks. And then look at the upside of all the downsides that we were talking about because yes. there is like it'll be like a little positive thinking cult yeah <laughs> yes oh. <laughs> it starts off negative and then we'll see the balance and we'll walk out feeling 
like more in 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 balance with with our emotions yeah yeah absolutely oh man i could talk to you for i'll continue hours. talking yeah it feels like we've skimmed the surface of a lot of things thank you for being so vulnerable and open on my podcast thank you for having me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to to talk you're the best thank you, you are. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you joel my pleasure thank you bye, bye. Hey, hey, hey.